0: Welcome to the sixth edition of the Privacy Whisperer Live Talks. Today, I'm here with Professor Orly Lobel. She's a professor of law at the University of San Diego in California. She's also the director of the Center for Employment and Labor Policy. She wrote three very acclaimed books, uh, Talent Wants to be Free, You Don't Own Me, and The Equality Machine. The Equality Machine is here. And uh, Professor Lobel has the the You Don't Own Me, if you want to show. You also have it we are going to talk about uh, questions uh, related to these books and she also wrote she wrote numerous articles her scholarship is extensive. she is trendy now with the with the barbie movie and barbie topics so we are going to talk about that why why professor lobel is trending and today as i said we are going to discuss ai for good uh, risks privacy and regulation but overall it's a more let's say optimistic approach to AI uh, from what we've, uh, we usually see uh, in the media or the main academic debates and legal debates. Uh, before I talk about the topics, I'm Luisa Jarovski, I'm the author of the Privacy Whisperer newsletter. I'm the founder of Implement Privacy and a PhD researcher as well. And before also we start, uh, make sure to subscribe to the Privacy Whisper newsletter if you want to be uh, notified about the next uh, live events and to also to receive my newsletter with the privacy tech and AI analysis and resources. So uh, welcome, Professor Labelle. Uh, everybody is excited here to have you. So if you want to say hi to everyone, they, are ex- they were expecting hi. you, <laughs> many messages. So today, the, uh, the main agenda for today. So first, uh, the, the I will tell now for you to have an idea and also for you to stay until the end because the questions will be at the end. So make sure to have pe- usually no computer, So just pure pen, pen and paper in, in your hands to, to take notes if you have questions. So we'll start with Professor Bell's personal journey, what in her life made her have this, let's say, unique approach to AI and more optimistic. And although she's also a lawyer, she has a legal background, she thinks more from this, let's say, bright side. And then we'll talk about polarization in the AI field. So what's going on? Why there's, what, what's this polarization about? Uh, the Equality Machine, so her book here, we're going to discuss some of the topics that are related to privacy and to the AI debate. Uh, Also, she has a very interesting article. Everyone should read it, especially if you're a privacy professional. It's called The the Law of AI for Good. So she discusses various, uh, I would say controversial topics for privacy people, they're controversial, but very uh, informative and interesting. It's important to have a different points of view and to to debate and to understand. And then we talk about her book, which is super popular now, uh, You Don't owe Me. It was popular in the past, and then with the Barbie movie, it became popular again. And at the end, I will open for questions. So you can write in the chat, uh, anything you want, in uh, the questions and comments, but the, we will have uh, like live questions in, at the end. So let's start. So in this book here, which I recommend everybody to read, it's about equality quality machine for those that didn't get is AI. So in this book, which we're going to discuss a bit later, Uh, Professor LaBelle, she talks about her personal journey, how her journey uh, influenced her perspective. And one of the stories she talks about is her experience in the Israeli military. Uh, She had, let's say, a feminist uh, experience, but maybe also not so feminist because uh, of the the piloting. So I I love to hear personal journeys. I think our books and our writings, they are all about the author, right? There there is a person and individual behind it. So I'd love you to share your story and what made you... Have this, such this unique point of view, and you're, what what's connect? What's the connection with your
1: personal story? Great. Well, first of all, thank you, Lisa. You said that I'm trending right now, and the reason, really, right now that I'm trending is all because of you. Because you've been so uh, amazing in this connecting the 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 world of privacy thinkers, thought leaders, professionals, ex- experts, and I've been following you and. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to be part of this community today. Um, okay. and, and thank and you, and but it has nothing connecting. to do with me. It's
0: all about you. But th- I, I'm fl- I'm happy. But it's all about you. Not nothing to do with me.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, no. Uh, but uh, and 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 you know, Louisa and I had actually the pleasure to meet when e- the Equality Machine came out at a book event in Israel uh, in person. But it's it's so amazing to hear about all the people from all around the world that can join us thanks to technology, you know, this is uh, something that has been really amazing how connected and networked we are and, and the kinds of kind of global exchanges and collaborations that are coming out of it. Um, and, and I look forward to kind of continuing the connections on, you know, social media and Twitter and or X or whatever it is, uh, all the platforms that connect that we have all kinds of feelings about, and we can talk about all of that. But as you say, I I had a little bit of a unique path, I think, um, for uh, becoming a law professor and an author and a Californian uh, where I live. I am Israeli. I was born in Israel, and um, I uh, served in the Israeli uh, Defense Forces, specifically in the Israelis will all know this, the 8200, you know, special uh, unit, military intelligence on cyber um, and uh, technology. And these were kind of the early days of the internet. And Lisa said, you know, there, there was this feminist aspect and then there was the uh, not so feminist because of pilots. So I, I'll, I'll flesh that out. I I could not go at that point to combat. I, uh, I was a feminist very early on, I think, thanks to my parents um and the role models that I had around me. Uh, but I uh could not legally go into um like flight course to, to become a fighter pilot. Uh, so I ended up marrying a fighter pilot, an F-16 pilot who is today my co-author, but also clerking on the Israeli Supreme Court, um, where we gave this very famous decision, the Alice Miller decision. Um, that opened up not only the Air Force, but really all the units uh, that are combat units in the military to um, people of all genders. So that that has been really an evolution. Um, But on my side of the the um, military career at the intelligence, you know, kind of that desk job that uses more your brain than, uh, you know, your physicality and physics. Um, But it was it was a it was a great experience of those early days of the internet and intranet really um, seeing how technology um, is a, such a powerful tool it can be used for good and for bad That's all the time the message of the equality machine you know never denying that we can use technology and these newfound really strong te- technological capabilities um, to do harm, but we can also use them for a lot of good and, and um, our social values, our, our normative commitments, um, And it also had this powerful thing about being the great equalizer, because again, from a gender perspective at that time, um, being able to do things there, we were excluded because of our gender, because of kind of biological differences that were thought to be detrimental to our participation in some places. When it came to digital technology, there was, it was kind of the first gateway of like, look, we, we can you know be as um, efficient and contributing and, and participating on kind of that level playing field. Um, there's kind of an, a third aspect that I think, again, is very important for privacy scholars um, where Technology was a great equalizer for me at that early time, even from the perspective of having a digital track record and digital paper trail of who contributed to different findings, reports, data mining. Um, I was a data analyst and and I saw all sorts of things, all kinds of patterns, um, you know, with my small AI here, like algorithm, my brain that, you know, not, not the kind of patterns that we can see today using machine learning, but, but I saw patterns that were really significant for what we were working on. And, um, there were dynamics where it was hard to swallow for some of our commanders in the army that, you know, somebody who's, um, lower level, a woman, younger is, um, contributing in that way. But, um, then there was a whole system. And you could see, you know, there was um, this track record of who, who was building these connections. And I thought that the valuation of talent became much more accurate when we were um, collaborating in that way. So that was kind of the early days. And I really wanted my work later on, uh, clerking on the Supreme Court, and then coming to the United States uh, as a graduate student and then becoming um, uh, a researcher, a professor, um, to really think about all the ways that we can harness digital technology and the, the newest digital technology as we you know, evolve um, in ways that are really impactful in a, in a positive way.
0: Um, interesting, yeah. So it was your first experience was equalizing in, in the gender gender sense, right? Of uh, family, let's say more feminism. And uh, I want to bring another topic that you mentioned. Uh, both, I, I think that the, the article, the law of AI for good, and, and the polit machine, they are very uh, intertwined, right? They they they, they 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 talk a lot with each other. And one of the topics that you bring in both uh, both in the book and in the article is the polarization in the AI field. And I think uh, I, I kind of cover it. Every conversation we we get at at some point we get into the sometimes I call the AI hype, sometimes the the AI debate. But I think, let's call this latest AI cycle started last year with ChatGPT, right? So they released it in October and then there was this, the world, everyone could see something that researchers and people in the tech area was already they were already seeing it for maybe a decade, but then suddenly the whole public had access. And then came what, what I'm calling this this latest ai wave right so the ai hype wave or ai wave and something that already exists and, and you mentioned in your book is is not it's from uh, before the the before ChatGPT, and there is a polarization and you name it as the utopians which would be the developers or the tech people right the people uh, the business people entrepreneurs developers everyone uh, they, they want the money but they are developing technology they want to solve a problem but they also want the money so this would be the utopians and the other side there would be the dystopians which would be legal I would have to put ask me like legal people which that would we, we tend to look at the risks and also privacy people AI ethics and ai safety people so which would these those people professionals and advocates would look more into the safety issues or bias or ethical or legal issues so we have these two sides that they were always there and now in this latest ai wave and we see in, in the video and twitter and linkedin social media or, or uh, academic debates it's really there those two groups are really clashing so my, my first question regarding this why do you think, uh, we, we are going to talk more about the polarization, but why do you think there's so much polarization? And just a, a parenthesis, when I compare, and, and when I started writing more about AI, and I compared the privacy field with AI field, privacy feels a more, much more a friendly community. I don't see internal, cl- maybe because everybody goes to a more similar direction of protecting privacy, but I don't see clashes the same way I see In the AI field, among the specialists. So, what, what, why do you think? What's special about AI or this AI field that we have these two world visions and and this polarized worldview? What, what do you think happens? And what's special about this latest AI wave?
1: Yeah. Look, we are facing a seismic change in how we do things. And, and it, there is something very scary, um, and natural about, uh, being kind of alarmed by uncertainty and by massive change that is coming. And, uh, you said, you know, chat GPT came out in October. The equality machine also came out in October and it was it was this kind of thing where I was talking already about polarization when I was writing the book, and I saw it become. I, but but on the other hand, I was talking about how people are not really aware of how good AI is becoming. They're just kind of thinking, oh, it's just this these algorithms that are all so inaccurate and biased, and you know we they they can't replace us. And and then there was this big shift where everybody was talking about how good. AI in terms of the capability—not you know AI for good—but how good AI is uh, in relation to you know, solving things, finding new things, um, making uh, all kinds of decisions and uh, da- tasks, and and generating you know different things that we humans have always been doing. So. I, I think that there's something natural. I actually, uh, some of my research has been focused on like how um, we've always had this tendency throughout history, really, um, of fearing the unknown and fearing something that will be like in our fantasy, the the thing that we create, but then 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 will destroy us. That's from the kind of you know Terminator fallacy, that, as as I call it in uh, the Equality Machine or the the Lave, I for good, I talk about all these irrational fallacies. There is, we've had this history of thinking, you know, Frankenstein, thinking Golem, thinking all these machines will then, you know, rise up against us. And now we're hearing this all the time. So, so that's on the side of being very alarmist and um, kind of the, the general public. Um, the polarization between the groups that you've talked about, um, I think... It's it's interesting and there's something counterintuitive here where the the people who are building these machines I actually think that they have some interest in making it sound so powerful that we're so scared but we're also really attracted to it so there is you know when with OpenAI like they're 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 focusing on this kind of Terminator fallacy in the very very long run when it where nobody really has a, a compelling or a, A clear story of like how would that happen? But um, they're saying, you know, we built something so new, and that's actually bringing both the alarmist kind of mindset, but also the largest um, or fastest, highest uh, deployment and integration and, you know, joining people joining in the history of digital platforms, you know, like within a few months. just out outperforming um, all social media and how many people are adopting it. So so highest adoption rates. Um, and at the same time, um, with there there are those stakeholders um, that have always been, and this is where I'll say something controversial about privacy. Have always been very very focused on this one value of. Do not intrude upon our, like intrusion upon seclusion is the tort of privacy. Do not over-survey us. Do not collect our data. Um, This is, it's understandable that this is something that is, again, a game changer when you value privacy. And I want to say at the outset, you know, early on in our conversation, I value privacy. Um, I'm on the board of FPF. You know, I, uh. Uh, very much have always uh, been concerned about um, privacy infringements um, over monitoring um, when, you know, we're, we're trying to protect uh, the more, more vulnerable, we're we're trying to achieve, you know, um, social goals that are important to us. But I think that I've always had perhaps a more balanced um stance about like how it's not the only value that we care about um and i think that i think there's something that is hard with being nuanced and being balanced and being more complex so it's easy to polarization is easy we see this in everything like we see this in politics you know in elections in a lot of issues um you know about um you know around the world everybody can think about their own um you know, landscape of the things that we debate about. So it's easy to um, point to either just you know the, the great potential or just the um, the one value that you care about and how that is maybe you know uh, being challenged right now. Um, I think the hard work of constructive um, visions is to. You know, progress with with a much more um, nuanced and rich vision of like how how everything um, is uh, is up for grabs and and is competing like a lot of values are competing um, with each other when we're building new technologies
0: yeah and I, I just want to compliment something that you said about the uh... The fear, right? So they, they there was ChatGPT and was new, and at the same time there was. I, I think it was a good marketing strategy of starting to push this AGI, right, artificial general intelligence narrative of the, you, you call it the Terminator fallacy, right? So it's it's going to come, for, and then there was the case of AI has a soul. I was chat, someone was right. with the chat, and no, actually it feels like it. So although narratives and if we think now not talking about law but human beings we we love narratives so there, there came the, the movies that's why we, we love reading books and going to the movies so this, this narrative became big of the, the terminator thing so maybe it's now it's coming we are building it and it's coming to to to, to take uh planet earth and uh, the, the, that's what to, to talk about the polarization because this narrative becomes became suddenly so strong because of marketing because of chat gpt and those uh, all, all stories of oh does it have a soul have people feeling that they have a relationship with, with the chat or whatever and i think like in a dialectics and then the other side came strong to say no stop and and not, not is not everything how to prompt and it's not uh, agi so at the same time i also that that's why we were talking i thought about this narrative thing of uh, uh, one side pushing fear and wow, the monster's coming for all of us and the other side like okay so it's like a, a reaction as well so maybe it's also one point and to continue you were you were talking about the, the balancing so again now I, w- I want to talk about this book so the equality machine is professor lobel's last latest book and why I, I love the book i think it's also the title so mo- most books about ai today they talk about risk so she even the book is yellow it's so it's like the sun bright equality machine so some, something uh shiny that maybe can can bring a, a light to to old problems and she's very optimistic in her book and also professor Label brings a very uh I, I i i say a legal type of reasoning so she says we we've not at least in law school. So I went to law school in Brazil and we have a civil law system and we always talk about balancing. So no, no value, no legal value is absolute. We always have a, like a balancing. So we, we enjoy privacy, but maybe we also need fairness or accuracy or other. We are constantly in a life or if we think with a, with a legal mind, we are constantly balancing. And then she, she gives many, Professor Lobel gives many examples of uh, balancing the context of AI. So one, one of them, for example, uh, sometimes allowing automated decision making can improve transparency and accountability. Because when only humans are deciding, sometimes we don't know there are, there are hidden biases or uh, noise and and, and other uh, circumstances that don't allow us to have uh a proper uh, perspective on, on what's going on or another example that she she talks about balancing or we talk about privacy or protected categories or race, religion uh, ethnicity uh, sexuality and perhaps when we don't focus so much on privacy and we give more visibility we can find ways to 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 find to to help with uh, fairness and access and other values so we are Sometimes uh, in the AI context, the debate gets too binary. And, and I love that you bring this. So, okay, so it's it's biased, so it's bad, so we don't use it. But, but that's not how it works. And we, you talk about also about, uh, what, it's one of the fallacies of the other article. You say that wh- when we evaluate AI, we usually say, no, it's this, there's a bias, so it's bad, so out, we don't like it. And you say no maybe we should compare it to how a a human would perform so maybe if we balance actually in this situation of the also scarcity there are other factors to take into consideration maybe it's actually it's not yes or no it's in the middle maybe we we have to improve the system uh, improve transparency improve accountability reduce bias but we still can use it we we should not deny it as as bad and while i was reading one of the questions i had in my it was, and I think it's, it's a typical also legal reasoning. How do we navigate those dilemmas? So we have, so I understand that the AI ethics and AI safety, they want to, it's. so they, they want to help focus on, on certain goals, which is, so we have to reduce bias. We have to build safe systems, which is an important goal. But your nuanced view is is very interesting, but the challenge my point of view is how to make it work, especially when we are dealing with different stakeholders and companies how do we uh, like promote this type of ideas and, and the, the law of AI for good and how do we make companies comply with this nuanced view so so that that's my, my I think uh, want, I wanted to hear from you like how, how do we navigate this, this more nuanced approach?
1: yeah so yeah first of all you know what is really important for me uh, I say this to my students who are all researching right now some aspect of AI um, algorithms and content moderation, um, generative AI, and intellectual property—all you know—all these questions, privacy—I um, say, confuse me with facts. I, I want to have the facts. I don't want to talk in the abstract about like, um, let's have AI not biased, um, and let's uh, you know make sure that um, we're not infringing upon our human rights with AI. Well, you know, it's it's so context specific and so capability specific, um, and so goal specific that that we have to be um, just. It's not just nuance; just really empirical about you know what what we're trying to achieve. So, um, so the how to you know is, is is tightly connected to you know, what is what is it that we are introducing and what are we trying to achieve. Um, I don't like things like um, the GTP, GDPR telling us that we should never introduce any like biometrics and facial recognition, technology and um, bots to sort out hiring, for example, hiring applications, resume, parsing, um, candidates, job applicants, um, promotion, all of these like in the context of employment. I, I take actually great pain in the book to show that when you actually do base it on the research, you see that there's huge potential in selecting the right kinds of um, algorithmic um, processes, uh, the, the the right kind of automation that will outperform our human, um, decision making. And that, that's really important to me. That's what you said, Louisa, that that it's, um, you know, we shouldn't be expecting when we're approving. And when I say we, you know, I, I do think that there is a role for po- policymakers to um, standardize you know the the technology to create to, uh, more transparency and and require auditing and and accountability and you know all of these things that that we know about. Like we need to do it um, in a very systemic way. Of you know like what it what is the um, automation process that you're introducing? Who are these companies like third party providers of these? Um, software. Um, what What is the data? How How was the algorithm trained? We want to know all of these things, and we want to be able to independently, like, have either government or non um, nonprofit stakeholders do like scraping or 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 um, double, you know, checking the the self audits. Um, but very important is that we recognize that we can't expect like technology to solve all our problems. And we also shouldn't require a double standard from t- from automation that um, we're requiring it to be in some way perfect when the status quo is so imperfect. So this is actually something that I get really kind of animated about as, as you might tell, like I get very frustrated because I've been teaching employment law and, um, discrimination policy and serving as an expert witness, um, and, and doing a lot of consulting on these issues of diversity and inclusion in the talent markets and the job markets, um, and, um, pay racial and, and, um, and, uh, gender pay gaps is, is something that I've written quite a bit about. And, and. You know, when you're in the weeds of this, you know that it's so um, sticky. There's such path dependence of organizations that do not change, even when they're sued for discrimination, even when they say, you know, like, let's change a a decision maker. Let's, uh, you know, oust a a harasser, uh, whatever it is. And and we really need um, to do something different um, because we, we all have um, conscious and unconscious biases. There are systemic failures in our processes. So I'm really looking for opportunities. And um, I think that there are advances in the, the AI field of making sure that there's constantly like two algorithms, one that is sorting through information. And then the second one is um, checking for bias. Um, and, and uh, the job market is just uh, one example. As, as you know, in, in the Equality Machine, I go through a lot of other fields of education and health and um, uh, government making decisions, financial uh, you know, uh, decisions like mortgages and lending. Um, and, and in each one of them, what I want to find is how do we, have a comparative advantage when we introduce technology that helps us make better decisions. Um, so so to your question, you know, how do we make it a reality is, first of all, we need to have informed discussions about these questions, um, you know, confusing us with facts, um, looking at what is really happening. what What is the current capability? So I, I see a lot of um, government reports like here, the Federal Trade Commission. Um, when it looks at like, should we automate some processes? It looks at like algorithms that were introduced 10 years ago that were really not ones, the ones that aren't in the market that have really corrected for a lot of the the fails that were based on um, partial da- data, tainted data, um, not having, not directing the algorithms to do the right, like the the, the better um, sorting, like telling them to just base, on, you know, decisions on what has been done before, rather than directing them to be more exploratory uh, and more independent and, and do something different and sorting. So, a lot of different things that have um, been, I think, self-corrected in the market uh, are we don't talk about them enough. And my call, I think, in in the research has been to. For all of us to not just make these statements about good and bad, um, kind of in the abstract, but actually have skin in the game in being informed, being part of the developing, you know, constructive um, community, whatever, wherever you are, if you're a policymaker or you're a programmer, um, and, and really kind of rely on what is possible, not just what happened in the past.
0: And, and in terms of uh, regulation and policy making let, let's take for example the AI act you think this is a balanced approach or or, or from my point of view it's not aligned right the, the AI act is is too one-sided from if if we are going to think yeah. about your so how how would you change it let's say how how would could we twist the AI act or if the US is going to have some uh, federal uh, AI legislation or something what would be better in your point of view in a regulatory point of yeah. view, from perspective
1: Yeah, I think the AI Act um, and similarly the Biden AI Bill of Rights draft, um, and then um, and even if you look at the GDPR, they're very focused on the risks um, and the fails and kind of and I would say it's like the the dual risks of um, bias and inequality and the risks of surveillance and privacy and, you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. data breaches. Um, those are the two that are the most dominant in these kind of, um, uh, laws, but they don't give us much direction. So, you know, they're just saying like, in the EU AI acts, they they're saying, well, just kind of decide what is high risk, what is low risk, and then, um, don't use AI when it's high risk. And, Um, always make sure that there's a human in the loop and like all kinds of things that, again, I think inadvertently um, don't target the the problems, the very problems that we want to solve. Um, For me, it would be much more balanced if there was actually a mandate um, by um, government to make sure that data collection is done well so um, I think you mentioned this already that I have this idea of data maximization. It's, I know it's controversial, but I, I don't like that we have as a default always data minimization, which is the term from the EU that has kind of carried over around the world. Um, what I, I keep saying is that, um, you know, uh, that, that there, we have to recognize that The less we know the more inaccuracies we introduce the um the less i think fairness um can be achieved in various contexts um i don't like for example uh, like another example of kind of this blunt one sided approach um saying that anything that's personal information cannot be collected um I think that that's not realistic these days. Um, I think you've talked about this, Louisa, with others um, in um, your, you know, on your platform about how um, these days with AI capabilities, you can't just blind, you can't just say, okay, we we won't collect um, identity markers like um, race, religion, gender, um, zip code, whatever it is, it's the, the technology is so powerful that it finds the proxies. So that's on the realistic side, um, but also on the just normative side, You know, we actually want to know the root causes of exclusions, of harms. Um, we want to see the disparities and understand them. So it actually makes much more sense to me to want to collect as much knowledge as we can to mandate in these acts, in these AI acts, public options, so that it, the the data is not concentrated just in the hands of a few you know like big 5 tech companies around the world um but we have we're building we're building publicly these um collective um you know commons really commons of data um for for our societies um and then we're regulating the misuses, the outputs, the the um, deployment of the these technologies rather than kind of blanket prohibition on some deployment in some context or some kind of like, don't do any facial recognition or don't apply AI to hiring and um, judicial dis- like decisions like policing. Like Those are, they're just, um, they're not only... Um, unrealistic, but they are actually, I think, really harmful for the very things that we really value, which is um, making our societies more fair and just and inclusive.
0: So uh, we now I'm going to jump to this point of data maximization, but just to conclude the regulation part. So, in your point of view, we should not restrict collection. So data minimization would be connected to, okay, broad collection, but then in your point of view would be regulation of the use, how they use it after you collect it. So you share you have this uh, large pool of data that can be shared not only among the big five, and then we regulate the, this would be the point of view mostly, not not in the collection phase, but the use phase.
1: Yeah, I think that's a much better solution. It's
0: yeah. So taking on that. So Both for,
1: from the perspective of market competition, but also just from the perspective of progress and science and, you know, human well-being um, that you know, we want to know. It's, it's like the, I, I, I have the analogy to our um, genetic, you know, the gene, uh, the genome project and, you know, how much health has come out of that. Um, So it's similar, you know, we, we can have a law about not discriminating on the basis of our genetics, but we don't, we should not have a law about not, you know, scientifically figuring out these things.
0: It's very similar to Professor Nita Farahani's perspective, so she was here for those who were in with the Professor Nita Farahani. She writes about brain privacy and she talks a lot about regulating data use also I had a similar interchange with her so I want to, to contextualize so Professor and she's Lubelli, a good
1: friend of mine, yeah
0: <laughs> yeah people yeah. don't know so they probably maybe they are going to do a surprise live soon, so let's see
1: yeah
0: <laughs> um, so let's I will contextualize a little bit for those who didn't read so First, I think some people already posted here in the chat. Please, if you if you can, po- uh, can someone post for me here the link to a law of AI for good, Professor Lobel's article that I'm going to talk about it now. It's uh, available online. So in this article, she wrote it was 2023, right? January you, you release. I think it's very interesting, and, and for uh, privacy professionals, and I know there are many people here working with privacy, is very. Uh, let's say even controversial the, the things that she says, but I think every debate is important, and we are here to discuss and to understand uh, different perspectives. Uh, so she begins talking about. I'm going to talk about the the, the let's say controversial parts, but she begins talking about the techlash, which is and she uh, like something uh, I would say bias against technology or bias against automation or bias against the, yeah. So there are six fallacies that. Uh, in, in Professor Lobel's point of view are, are, are let's say wrong or we, t- we should think them differently. So first is the human machine double standard. So when we analyze humans, we are more balanced and we, we see pros and cons, but when we analyze machines, we want them to be perfect. We don't even compare them to, to humans. Please correct me if, if you want to, 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 if I say something wrong, please.
1: No, this is absolutely right. This is, uh, and I talked about that uh, just before, but but I'll give another example where, like, when are we going to be comfortable with self-driving cars, with um, uh, autonomous vehicles, robo-taxis? Uh, I think we should be comfortable with them immediately when they are safer than humans, but we have this fallacy of like no they have to have be accident free you know never fail never do something wrong and until then we won't be like allowing them on the street so so it's very important to me to kind of have that comparative lens comparative advantage question all the time in every context
0: so this was the first fallacy the second one uh, so let's go in the context of let's say bias against automation or or fallacies uh, the tech clash would be the approach that AI is static. So as you mentioned, sometimes uh, the FTC was uh, denying AI use in a certain context, but was uh, basing on old algorithms, let's say from 10 years ago or from a few years ago, and algorithms or or technology is changing and it improves, and we should see it as uh, like potentially getting better with uh, in a few months. And, and not just look, OK, the, the one from last year was bad, was not accurate enough, so let's not use it. Um, the third one is, it's, it's, I think it's an important one, especially for uh, poverty issues, or it, uh, is ignoring scarcity. Uh, every, so I think you use the example of medicine, right? So there are various AI devices for diagnosis and we cannot ignore maybe they are not 100% but there are places in which it's difficult to hire a doctor uh, or it it would be very difficult to offer health services in remote areas and maybe if we had a not so perfect ai system we could send there we would it would be much better than having nothing having and never having a doctor there or a
1: diagnosis system there
0: the fourth one would be yeah. uh,
1: and and i'll just say that again that's is about everything, but yeah, like education, for example, uh, again, privacy, um, scholars are very worried about introducing technology, robots, um, social robots, uh, or, um, iPads in classrooms and, uh, like in school, uh, context. And again, the question is what is, um, the advantage and what, what can be scaled, um, and, particularly thinking for me, it's a very important to think about like, it's not, we can't compare it to like the best classroom that has like 10 students and two teachers where there's like all this attention. There's millions of children around the world that don't have access to um, literacy support, to tutoring, to um, personal attention, to personalized learning and, um, at, I think that there's a hubris in not understanding the kind of question of scalability as part of the, the ways that we are assessing new technology.
0: And the fourth fallacy would be risks are always larger than gains. So we have this bias. We, we, like, we don't appreciate the gains or evolution or benefits, and we overlook the risks, uh, over, uh, focus too much on risks. Um, The fifth fallacy would be thinking in binary, so adopt or ban, and not like a middle term, maybe we adopt, but with uh, additional transparency tools or safety uh, requirements, so there's like a, a true binary point of view. And the sixth and last fallacy would be the distributional assumption, which from what I understood is like, is the assumption that it will, when AI goes wrong, it will always impact uh, or affect worse the vulnerable when you say it's the this, this is right, right? So it's the opposite. Actually, when we do a right, uh, right it will help the ones that are most uh, benefit, the most benefit from it are the vulnerable or, or people in poverty or from a minority that will have more access to, to be- better services. So is that correct?
1: Yeah. Um, again, it's like this idea of um, technology as... Uh, privileging the, the, the um, better off or or conversely this idea that privacy always protects the vulnerable I, I take a lot of uh, kind of make a lot of effort to show that you know sometimes that's right but a lot of times that's wrong a lot of times privacy has been a sword for the more powerful Um, It's been kind of a proxy for secrecy of those who have things to hide um, and they are very powerful. And like I actually uh, some of my uh, other work has been focused and it connects to my even my first two books has been about non-disclosure agreements and how expansive they've been, how much. companies are over claiming confidential information and proprietary information as owned as fenced, uh, And, and so for me, it's important to say, look, um, we need to always consider the distributive effects. And uh, a lot of times, actually, technology is the great democratizer, the great equalizer, the great um, tool to create more access, more scale, as I said, um, and we really kind of want to, so, so here's another example where from um, policing, algorithmic um, sentencing, there's there's really this knee jerk reaction by a lot of like criminal law scholars and activists that are like, oh, that sounds terrible that we'll have um, algori- automation of um, our law enforcement processes because it's just gonna amplify our racial biases, you know, here in the United States, we have a terrible system um, that is very um, systemically discriminatory against people of color, um, against uh, African-Americans. And I, I think that there's a lot to be said of um, when, you know, you're introducing, um, you're taking away the human bias, when you're introducing more rationality into a system, when you are, um, addressing the very problematic thing that is the reality of all governments, that they have very scarce resources and irrationalities, and not a lot of staff. When you start addressing these things, you can show how everybody gains, how like um, you actually have less law enforcement, less, uh, you can get, you know, more people released out of prison early, and the ones that will gain the most are the ones that are disproportionately imprisoned. So it's, it's kind of uh, really exactly the opposite of a lot of the stories that we hear about how this will just amplify the current realities of, of bias and discrimination.
0: And, and in this article, the law of AI for good, so after uh, you spoke, you say, you explained those fallacies that, that you, like uh, the group of things that compose the tech lash, and then you talk about the potential of AI for good, uh, which is very aligned with the uh, quality machine. I see uh, examples in environment, food scarcity, health, accessibility, education, and so on. And then that that's, uh, comes a point where I think it's fascinating for privacy professionals, and I know many people here in the audience are privacy professionals, so Professor Lobel says, after what we've just discussed, there is the tech clash and there is the potential. So we have to have a different uh, approach to AI when we analyze and maybe also when we regulate. So she talks about the right to automated decision-making. So it would be the human out of the loop. And and we are going to talk more about that. And also the right to data collection or data maximization. For for privacy professionals, Professor Lobel is like, Red light, you know, like big red light. We are like every data minimization basic principle. So I think it's important that we discuss it. So just to to give an example, so the right to automated decision making, in, in, for from Doctor from Professor Labelle's perspective, would be actually against Article 22. If you remember, GDPR Article 22 says that we, we should have the right not to be subject to automated decision making, and she proposes that we should think also about the rights in some occasions and depending on the context, and, and I want Professor Labelle to, to talk more about that, we should also have the right to have, in certain cases, right to automate the decision-making and to have no humans uh, or humans out of the loop. And the second right, so data collection, so and it's very connected to what she was talking about, the, the reduction in bias or less discrimination, in order to have better data, data that is useful for more populations, we need to have more data. If that data set is biased or towards a certain population or it has more data from these people, it will, be only, it will only work for that type of people. So if we have more data, more data collection from more people, we will have more, uh, fair, fair, better, more useful and fair results that, that will be uh, uh, beneficial to other people. So this, I think it's, I, and you know it when you publish the article. I saw many privacy professionals commenting on because you know you say data maximization is like red light, red light, something's wrong. So I'd love to, to hear from from you, uh, having in mind that there are so many people here from the privacy community, and we are so used to this like basic principle: data minimization. No, don't collect. Always, it's like uh, essential to to minimize the collection. So how would we think together, right? So we have the GDPR, we have the basic privacy principles, it's a uh, a fundamental right, uh, privacy as a fundamental right. And also when we talk about AI, you're bringing these new rights. So how do they they live together, those two data minimization and data maximization? How do we draw those lines? I think this is the big challenge, right? Every, Every time we are talking about rights and policy. And also data collection. And, uh, we said uh, right, right to automated decision making and right not to be subject to automated decision making. When do when one is better than the other? How, how do we uh, have both at the same time?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I'll give you an example. We talked at the very beginning of our conversation about my trajectory of. Um, being in the intelligence, the military intelligence, and then um, also marrying a, a fighter pilot, um, and my my fighter pilot husband is actually a behavioral economist here at UCSD, and we we co-author um, sometimes, and uh, we talk about this. We he he flies commercial planes now uh, here in California, and I think that it's it's a good intuitive example of the right to automation that comes really early on from, um, from the world of commercial aviation, where we as a global community have become convinced, because it's true, that there needs to be one computer that really is um, the central aviation commercial, global commercial um, aviation, actually it's based here in LA Um, And it controls everything and there is a standardized um, federal aviation, you know, act law, but uh, international treaties, uh, you know, international agreements and all over the world, similar um, laws that at the highest risk, this is kind of exactly the opposite of what um, the EU AI Act says at the highest risk moments where there is very bad weather we know that it's safer to take the human out of the loop and not allow them any control over the, you know, they, they actually can't do anything and it has to be auto landing. Um, so we've reached that moment. And, and what I uh, want us in the equality machine to be honest about is when are we reaching those moments in the different contexts that we're racing and automation and things are changing so fast, as you know, like it's so hard to keep up. Um, there's, and it's, it's sometimes like a guacamole game, right? Like there, um, you know, you feel like with privacy, I know that this is always true. It's privacy and cybersecurity. Like you have this like new, um, you know, powerful way to maintain against breaches and, um, you know, keep information, uh, secure, but then there's, you know, new ways of hacking. And you're like all the time in this kind of cat and mouse race. Um, so it's very dynamic. But but I do think that we have to um, be honest and um, align our interests. Like if we want more safety, um, at you know, on a given, um, like, let's say airport safety. Um, I think it's a democratic question about how do we balance the different things of like having um, a shared face recognition um, data bank that is just getting better and um, and it it should be full. This is also related to the data maximization, right? Like if we want it to be effective, we need to um, feed it. You know the the um, the, the kind of full and not partial you know uh demographics that uh we have um, and we need to ask that, you know what are the values that we care about so there's going to be conflicting values for me again as as somebody who cares about privacy but puts it on the same level playing field as other um values I uh, worry when privacy is elevated and privileged um, in a way that doesn't ask, why do we want privacy? So sometimes there, there's this idea that privacy is a good in itself, like a deontological um, value that's just, we want this right to be free of any monitoring, surveillance of being part of a shared you know, data bank. Um, I'm less on that camp i think that privacy is and is is kind of like for um the 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 end it has a like a goal of preventing misuses preventing abuses preventing harms and exclusions and so that again it goes back to this like the right to data maximization and collection and then let's really regulate recognize that it can be used for good and bad and then you know let's regulate Let's, let's be at the end game, not at the kind of the front, um, you know, at the beginning, like slow down the evolution of technology.
0: And on, on this point, actually, I've been discussing uh, the Privacy Whisper and in my master classes about privacy in AI. If we think about traditional privacy principles, or let's say the, the rights that the subject's right, right? to access, uh, data minimization, right to be forgotten. When we think about uh, large language models and the current way that we, we train the AI, that AI models are trained, they are not compatible. How can, and there have been, I have been recently various lawsuits arguing that. I saw uh, last, last week there was another person that said that, well, I, I asked ChatGPT for my bio and it was wrong so i or i, I sent a request a data subject request right i told them delete my data as the gdpr says that you you can you can have this right of de- deleting your data or uh, right of right to be forgotten right to access all your data and right of deletion and of course the it's impossible right so data personal data was created from the internet and it was used to train models and it's there it's embedded it, it would be it, they would have to just delete it and and do another another chat gpt with without this person's information so traditional privacy uh, rights and, and privacy principles are, it's difficult to say that all those new AI models are compliant. So in a sense, I, I like to hear your perspective. It's a, it's a new, and I always say it's impossible. If you look at the, the way we see the GDPR, the chat will, or any other large AI-based, large language model, will not be compliant. it will not you, all those basic principles and rights it will be very difficult to say that it's uh, you're, you're, they are effective or they help anyone. And at the same time, there's the, the, the aspect of public good that AI can, can bring automation and can bring uh, access and etc. cetera. So I, I love your perspective in the sense of, of bringing a new... I, I see that privacy, when we put AI and privacy, I see a crisis in privacy because it, it doesn't go together and we need to... Either we say that it is not working anymore and we, th- we need a new privacy law, or we need to rethink privacy. Oh, but we need something. We need to to keep privacy and keep and keep AI developing anyway. So I I love to hear to listen to this article and and the, and how you put the concepts. Uh, I I still have doubts on so how how to regulate it. I'm always with this uh, regulator mind of okay, we have the GDPR and the GDPR will stay, and we need something that works with AI. So I I, I love to hear about the. But it's still hard in my mind to, to understand. Do you have a perspective, how so you we need a, and the new AI law should have those principles and then they would uh, apply together with the DPR. I think it's a it's a challenge. We are, we are almost over our time. I just want to talk a little bit before we go to uh, a few quite one or two questions. So please prepare questions. I want to talk about Professor Lobel's book, You Don't Owe Me. So it's not related to our main talk, but I want to talk about it in any case. It's about the legal battle between Barbie and Bratz. And uh, it's a, it involves intellectual property, but not only intellectual property, right? There are more uh, intricacies. I didn't read this book, but I, I've heard uh, about it. It, it became trending because of the Barbie movie, and because of uh, it, brought attention to the topic, and, and perhaps because of AI, also intellectual property came again to, to trend. Um, so, and also, I would like to tell everyone that CBS just bought a rights to. To is they are they are going to put their Probably it's not, is it uh, confirmed that so they are going to produce a TV series based on your book, right? So this is the, the or the, it's they're
1: developing it. Yeah, if there's a writer's strike and a actor's strike in Hollywood, so it's taking time. But yes, CBS has uh, uh, gotten the rights and they did a press release about it. So it's that's been going kind of viral exactly. about how we will have a mini series based on the book. Um, so it and, has to and, do Lisa, with it's, AI. It's not because... unre- yeah it's not completely unrelated to it's actually i think it's all related (laughs) so i mentioned that you know my first two books talent wants to be free and you don't own me um we're all focused on how do we have competitive markets and how does information flow i mean again that kind of that two sides of the coin of privacy secrecy um and promoting innovation and progress and art and science, it's all embedded. It's related to intellectual property and um, competition and the ethics of corporations and uh, kind of market concentration and market dominance. So it tells a full story about how when we had one company and you like, you could tell the same story. I mean, and it was told like about, Um, in the social network movie about um, Facebook and Meta and and its history. And you could tell these same stories about Wall Street and, um, you know, like these financial tycoons that had these failures, uh, you know, maybe like about crypto now and different things. And, And I wanted to bring this story about corporate ethics and trying to control the innovation, the message, the intellectual property um, in the toy industry, in the in this iconic you know, doll that we have um, that shaped our childhood, that shaped um, so much of our culture. I, I tell the story of how um, litigation was used in very problematic ways. I said that privacy in the quality machine, I show how it um, is a sword and a shield. And in the You Don't Own Me, I show how litigation and intellectual property is a sword and a shield, that it's, um, you know, sometimes used to um, align with the goals that we have in our laws, which is promoting progress in, in arts and science and promoting innovation. But sometimes it does exactly the opposite. It's really um, stagnating competition and stagnating the will and the incentives to innovate, to, to, have more consumer products, to change with the times. And so it's kind of the, and the subtitle is, you know, exposing Barbie's dark side. So it is really about like all these timelines of um, the darker side of, of uh, the toy and entertainment industry.
0: And and why, so you think that Barbie movie, so they asked, they bought it right after the Barbie movie or before? So that it brought, that it came to before. Wow. So it was super. And now the movie also came. So it's all related. Amazing. Made it trendy. I see everybody talking about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I wrote an article this uh, this past weekend It was published on Saturday um, about comparing the the movie and the reality of um, of what I've uncovered about Mattel as a corporation and its um, wars and the, the history of the brand. Um, but, but yeah, the, the book does a lot of that. And, and um, yeah, it's, it was, it, I, I thought it was always cinematic when I wrote it um, came out a, a couple of years ago and CBS optioned it. But as I said, it's been kind of slow in the making and now it's the summer of Barbie and it's the summer of Oppenheimer too, I guess. <laughs> and uh the summer of generative AI Um, and so it's been exciting to connect it like another connection I I have to say that you know just it's funny to think about your own like genealogy and and motivations to to uh, have a voice in, in a topic. I talk about in You Don't know Me about how I became an early critic of like dolls and Barbie. Um, my mother is a psychology professor and I described kind of some of that history, but, but when I started researching um, AI for and, and technology and digital technology for the Equality Machine, I actually went into, um, and I go into it uh, later in the book in the Equality Machine into um, robotics and embodied um ai Um, and again we we could talk for a long time about this um aspect as well of like their cultural differences like i i asked this question of like why are um uh, japan and korea why are uh, people seem to be more comfortable with embodied robots and don't seem to have the same kind of oh no it's the terminator they're gonna kill us um it's sentient and so i'm afraid of it and you know what what, what. so so there is there's a history there and there's a kind of cultural i think there's also generational differences um but it seemed to me that like there were analogies here between like how we relate to inanimate objects like how much we build things dolls and robots and then how we we play how we create how we um, progress uh, so so that's kind of in my mind the the threads that connect all of it
0: I'm happy that there was a connection and
1: uh, and I, I'm
0: looking <laughs> forward to watching I didn't watch Barbie movie yet so I want to watch the series but I think the series will take uh, probably years right so to, until we, we can watch it but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to read hopefully uh, not
1: video. years but uh, yeah soon
0: thank you so much only for coming and uh, once more i will show if you didn't read read the equality machine also you don't owe me talent wants to be free and her article uh, about the law of ai for good uh, do you want to share any last message to invite people to follow you to read your book to watch anything you want i, I give you uh, the last word before we conclude
1: well, it was a pleasure Luisa, as always and exactly what you said i you know i, I want to connect i'm i'm very um, easily uh you know it's very easy to find me so uh it's orly lobel on all the different platforms that you can think about so tag me connect with me um you know post i want to hear from readers i want to continue the conversation because it's really just the beginning
0: thank you so much professor lobel for joining me it was a pleasure to have this conversation with you thank you everyone for being so active in the chat uh thank you for joining this this talk and make sure to subscribe to Privacy whisper and we have another talk on uh, september september 20th we have another one so bye have a great day everyone